You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we pray what we just sang, that you would capture our attention with a fresh picture of you, Lord Jesus, our risen and glorious King, that you would help us by your Spirit to fix our eyes on you, the one who made all things, the one who authors our faith, the one to whom we are anchored, in whom is all our hope. Would you cause our hearts to respond in thanksgiving and gratitude as we listen and receive and worship through this time in your word this morning? Build up and equip your people with everything that we might need for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> Good morning. Uh, welcome to uh, River City. Welcome back to some of our university students who've been back maybe wherever home is at, um, chilling, working, doing whatever you do. Uh, those of us who no longer have summers, it's just normal. It's just been a sort of string of Mondays for us. So welcome back. We're glad that you're here. So from, from preschool to grad, to grad school, we've begun a new school year, right? Or again, for everyone else, just a normal week. Um, but for all of us this morning, no matter where you're coming from, whether you're starting new rhythms, whether you're kind of getting back into some rhythms you've let, uh, you know, get a little tired or cold, or whether this has just been your normal routine, for all of us today, it is our privilege to come together and worship Jesus this morning. Amen? That's what we're doing. And, and I'm really excited for all that God might have in store for us as a people in the coming season. Uh, just as a little bit of a preview, we've had a couple of people ask, hey, what are we going to be reading or studying on Sundays? Um, this fall, we're planning to look at two uh, kind of smaller New Testament epistles. Um, we'll begin in a couple weeks, um, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, and then next week, um, we actually will have a guest with us. Uh, uh, Pastor Caleb Drehosh is at a, one of our partner churches, uh, their next 29 church in Jamestown. Um, Caleb will be here next Sunday, just be in town. I said, hey, would you want to preach on a Sunday? And he's like, that'd be awesome. So Caleb will be here uh, next Sunday. You guys will get to meet him. It's, it's kind of a picture of what gospel partnership looks like. And so we're excited for that. Um, but today, <clears throat> we're going to do uh, something a little bit different. In the fall, we want to take a little bit of time and kind of recapture a, a picture uh, of our vision and our mission together as a church so we're going to actually do that this morning, and looking at, uh, looking at it through the lens of Colossians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Colossians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around and can get you a Bible so you can read along. Um, we'll be primarily in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at a few other places in, in Paul's, some of Paul's letters in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, um, but primarily we'll be in Colossians chapter 1. And so as folks are coming around, if you would like a Bible, slip your hand up and they can give you one. If you do not own a Bible, please take one of these home with you. Um, and as you're turning to Colossians chapter 1, let me just ask a, a question. 
Uh, when you think of the word mission, what comes to mind? Now, maybe you think of words, other words come to mind like purpose or goal or task. Maybe when you hear the word mission, you think secret agent or something. But let me just frame that definition for our context. Mission, in this context, relates to a calling and a charge. So when I'm asking the question, when we ask the question, what's our mission as a people together? What's our mission as a, as a church? Here's the question I'm asking. The question under the question is this. As those who have faith in Jesus... As those who are joined together, gathered together in a local church like we are here at River City, to what are we called and what is our charge? That's the question I want to ask. Now, in Matthew chapter 28, it's often referred to as the Great Commission, Jesus has now resurrected from the grave, has made himself known to his disciples and to many others, and he says this, as you go... Make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the calling is to follow Jesus. He said that early in the Gospels where he looked at those fishermen and he said, follow me. The calling starts there. So the calling is to follow Jesus as his disciples, and that calling carries with it a charge to make disciples. You you following me? And so I think a good biblical argument for our calling and our charge would be this, to follow Jesus in the work of disciple-making. Further, if that is indeed our calling and our charge, our mission then, for the follower of Jesus, if that's, if that's true, then it becomes now the primary mission of our lives. What I mean by that is every other calling that we might have, and there are many things that we're called to as husbands and wives, as dads and moms, as neighbors, as students, as employees, lowercase callings, if I can say it that way. All of those callings then find their place underneath that primary calling as a disciple, and particularly as a disciple-making disciple. And if that's the case, now that's an assertion I'm making, but, but follow me. If that is indeed the case, that all of our other callings now find their place underneath that primary calling, then every personal goal Every, every mission statement for an organization or a company that we might work for, every strategy we might put in place to pursue the things that we value on our team, in our workplace, even in our own families, every one of those areas of responsibility, those areas of influence that we might have, every one of our goals, every one of our mission statements is in pursuit and is in service to that shared mission as followers of Jesus, that shared commitment to Jesus and to one another and as members together of this local church, following Jesus as disciple-making disciples. Now, I know that not everyone in the room is, a, is a formally a member of River City, and that's okay. I am saying this, 
that we are intentionally pursuing and unapologetically inviting everyone in earshot to join us in this shared mission. I think faithful discipleship, that is the following after Jesus, faithful discipleship and faithful disciple making is the calling and the charge for every believer in Jesus, no matter your church affiliation. That is, if you're a follower of Jesus, then your calling and your charge are the same. And so at River City, we put words to it like this. Our mission is to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. I know, real original. But I hope you see it, and I hope you hear it when we talk about it. Our aim isn't growth for its own sake, right? It's not just people showing up. The, the source, the power, the focus of our mission is the gospel. There's a centrality of the gospel to our mission. Our mission is one of multiplying disciples through the gospel of Jesus. And we'll unpack a little bit about what that looks like. And then, as a church, what we value, how that comes to life among us, we put into two categories. Gospel word and gospel mission is just kind of how we delineate it. You could probably slice this up a dozen different ways. This is a way for us to get our, our tiny brains around it, so maybe it's helpful for you. So we value God's word, the scriptures, the Bible. It's God's authority for all areas of life. And we value worship, as Devin unpacked for us even this morning. Here, formally, an intentional response to God's word that then trickles out into all of life. And under gospel mission, that plays itself out or is lived out then in gospel community. I'm in the same community group as Alex and Amy Holmquist. You too could be a part of the Gonzer community group on Tuesdays. It's at my house. Just come on up. We'll have cookies. It'll be great. So community comes out of that and the expression of God's mercy. And those fall under gospel mission, gospel word and gospel mission. And so my hope in telling you all that is just to kind of refresh us in those distinctives of River City and to kind of set the stage as we read our text today. I want us to, to see where we anchor this calling and this charge to God's word. And we'll find that here today in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 29. A little bit right before we read, a little background on, on Colossians, because we haven't been studying it uh, formally. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to this group of Christians to encourage them, primarily to remind them that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and that Jesus is inviting them to walk in this new resurrection life that he secured for them. So he's writing this as, a, as an encouragement. Remember, Jesus is Lord over everything, and you were invited as his disciple to walk in his life. That's a really generic brief overview of the book of Colossians. So if you still have your Bibles open, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 15. Um, I'm going to read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 29. I invite you to follow along. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Paul is speaking about Jesus. And he says this. <clears throat> he, Jesus, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is God's holy and perfect word. Now there's a lot here. There's like eight sermons of material on a variety of topics that we are not going to cover today in the time that we have allotted. I might try and you might feel that I'm trying, but we're not. I want to kind of take a larger snapshot at this whole section in light of our calling as a church and as disciples. So our big idea is this, that our calling and our charge is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus by the power of his gospel. Let me say that again. Our calling and our charge is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus by the power of his gospel gospel. And in our Colossians passage, the reason I wanted to study this one this week is because in here we find a couple of anchors for our mission. In fact, I have three of them, three anchors from this text that hold our mission to its biblical foundation. If our calling and our charge is to make disciples, I think it's anchored by these three realities at least these three realities, but three that we find in this text. One, the preeminence of Christ. I'll explain what that is in a second. Two, the power of the gospel word to transform. And three, the pursuit of gospel mission. The preeminence of Christ, the power of the gospel word to transform, and the pursuit of gospel mission. Let's look at the first one. The preeminence of of Christ. Preeminence is not a word that shows up in our vocabulary every day. I found this helpful. Uh, it was the, the North African 
bishop, Augustine of Hippo, who said this, if Christ, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. That's what I think is a, a good helpful framework when we look at that word in verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. So preeminent means, it means supreme. It means the top, the first, the most best. There is no other. Paul writes that Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who created all things, let me say that again, all things, verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Things in heaven and things on earth, both spiritual and physical. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Meaning that God the Son, the second person, the uncreated second person of the triune Godhead, is the beginning and the end of all creation, and he holds the universe together. All things, seen and unseen. Paul continues. And in his incarnation, in his physical body, the humanity that he took upon himself, in which he was born to Mary, he establishes himself as the head of his people, the church. And then Paul keeps going, and is the firstborn from the dead. Paul says, not the first to ever be raised from the dead. There were dead-raising miracles in the Old Testament. Unfortunately for all of those people, they had to die again until Jesus. So when Jesus says in John 10 that nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down and I pick it back up, that's what we're talking about here. Why? Paul says, so that in everything, he might be preeminent in everything. Paul continues that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ the Son. Now, there's a, there's a much deeper theological treasure about the triune God here, about the divinity of God the Son and union with God the Father and God the Spirit, and we don't have time for that this morning. You have to chew on that on your own, but it is rich and it is beautiful. But I just want to center a little bit on preeminent. So when we say that Christ is preeminent, we mean that nothing in creation, nothing in creation, seen or unseen, nothing sits atop Jesus. Nothing in creation rules over Jesus. There is no authority above Jesus. It means that Jesus rules supreme as King of kings and Lord of lords, period. That's what it means. And this is why it's helpful for us and is an anchor for our mission. If our primary aim, the thing we're chasing, is anything else, if it's anything less than, then it will, it will surely fail. If our aim, our goal is only some kind of cultural or social change, even for the better, if our aim is focused on getting butts in seats, can I say butts? Or making a name for ourselves as a church or as individuals, if that's our primary aim, 
If our aim is limited to anything within creation, ourselves, our ability, or merely just solving our own problems, as good as any of those aims might be on their own, they aren't preeminent because we aren't preeminent. Nothing in creation is, only Jesus, the uncreated one. So in everything we do, including the work of evangelism, including in the work of making disciples, it must be anchored to the truth that Jesus is before all things and above all things, and in him all things hold together. It has to. Everything else must submit to that reality. Now, from that, from that reality, all kinds of good things can happen. As I said in my introduction, there are all sorts of places to which God's called you. All sorts of different responsibilities and callings and influence. And let me just encourage you that Jesus is supreme over all of them. In every place where you live and work and have influence and responsibility, Jesus sits supreme over all of them. Which begs a question. What does it look like for Jesus to be preeminent in my relationship with my spouse or my kids? What does it look like for Jesus to be preeminent in your schoolwork or in your office or in your neighborhood? We must be firmly anchored to the glorious reality of the preeminence of Jesus in everything. And here's where the preeminence of Jesus points us and moves us now beyond theory, to practice, to mission as disciple-makers. Look at verse 20. And through him, right? In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, verse 20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The work that the preeminent Christ has done is the work of reconciliation. It's another big word we don't use very often. He has reconciled, meaning he has repaired the relationship between God and man that was broken because of sin. In Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus has built a bridge of peace, as Paul talks about it, making peace that covers the gap between creator God and us, his creation. It's what leads to our mission. And that's our second anchor. First, that Christ is preeminent. Second, that there's a power in his gospel word to actually transform. Look at verses 21 and 22. And you... Don't you love how the whole first section of our passage, from verse 15 to verse 20, it is all him, he, him, he, Jesus has done this. Verse 21, and you, thank you for including us, Paul, except maybe not. Look at what he says. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's our contribution. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You and I were alienated, Paul says, hostile. So this isn't passive. 
It's actively hostile, doing evil deeds. It doesn't even need to say what they are. We can fill them in ourselves. We were utterly lost and dead in our sin. But Paul doesn't leave us there. But God has reconciled us. He's removed our blame, and now we stand clean. That phrase, above reproach, means accusations that used to stick to us don't stick any longer. Because when we stand before a holy God in Christ, we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. Above reproach in this context tells us that when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sinfulness any longer. He sees the perfection of Jesus, and Jesus is above reproach. No accusation of sin sticks to Jesus, and we are in him. We'll get into the mystery of that here in a second. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this way you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he makes this list of sins that separate sinful man from a holy God, and then he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, similar to our words here right? Again, thank you for including us, Paul. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's what's happening in reconciliation. We are being washed, we are being sanctified, we are justified before God. He washes us clean of all of our past sin. He sanctifies, meaning he sets us apart. He sets us in a different posture, in a different position for a different purpose. He justifies us. He counts us righteous by giving us his perfect righteousness. So when Paul says that Jesus reconciles us, that's what he means. And all this is ours by God's grace through faith in Christ that comes through the gospel word. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The power to change does not come from within ourselves. It's not a light bulb that we can turn on one day. It's not just a a shot of willpower that we happen to muster at some point to, to work our way back to relationship with God. We cannot do enough good to outweigh our bad. Sorry if it's disappointing to you. The bad pile is always bigger. Because even, even in our good deeds, our motives are often corrupt, right? Reconciliation must come from outside of us. And so we need to hear the gospel, the word, that reconciliation is possible through Jesus. Think about it. Can you recall when you first heard good news, when you recognized the overwhelming reality of your own sinfulness, and you heard in your own ears the beauty that you wouldn't have to cover your own sin, that that another would give himself to to make you new, to clean you, to forgive you, to, to rescue you, to reconcile you, When you heard the overwhelming wonderfulness of the gospel, I don't know if that's a word. Don't care. It's wonderful. But here's the reality for us. Now, for those of us who've been a Christian uh, for a long time, 
I think when we hear gospel, we tend to categorize it as something that I heard back there somewhere. But I just want to encourage you that gospel word is powerful, not only to save us, although it is, hallelujah, but to sanctify us. It's at work in us now to change us. Look at what Paul says in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, this is talking about his crucifixion, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Now I want to pause there for a second. If you're reading this, you maybe heard an if in here. Hold the phone. I read an if. Am I supposed to now keep myself? If indeed you continue? What am I supposed to do with this? Look at the whole sentence. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Here's the part I want to emphasize. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Which begs the question. What gospel have you heard? It's possible that you heard a gospel that said, try harder. I'm using gospel loosely here, lowercase g, okay? It's possible that you heard one that said, God cleans you up and gets you back to square one. But from here on out, buckle up, it's up to you. You may have heard a gospel that says Jesus loves you if, and if the next words were anything other than repent and trust wholly in what Jesus has done for you, then friends, I have a caution that you may have heard a faulty gospel. Because Paul writes to the church in Galatia. We'll study Galatians at some point because it's just rich and awesome, but I'm just going to give you a preview. The, the Christians in Galatia are in danger of abandoning the hope of the gospel. I feel like this little line in Colossians, it doesn't reference them, but it references them, right? Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. And in in the Galatians, we're, we're, we're drifting towards trusting in their own works to be righteous before God. Paul says this, Galatians chapter three, he goes, let me ask you only this, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you come to this saving knowledge on your own? You worked your way to it? Or did it come to you by God's glorious grace and mercy into your ears and affecting your heart? Did you come to this faith on your own? Or is this a work of the Spirit? So I think what Paul says in verse 23, that your reconciliation kind of hinges the if on continuing in the faith and not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, it should in some ways cause us to ask, well, in what gospel do I hope? Do I hope in my own ability to maintain my salvation? If so, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. Probably sooner rather than later. I can't hope in the gospel of hard work or the gospel of self. Or am I hoping in the gospel of Jesus where he's the one who reconciles me by his own blood? That I'm only clean because he cleans me and that I am presented before him 
I don't present myself. He cleans me and presents me before himself holy and blameless and above reproach. It is only by the blood of his cross that we are reconciled. And so that's the caution. There's a caution here in this Colossians passage that, that if we do shift from that reality, if we believe another gospel, that's, that's trouble. It's danger. But if our hope is in, as the early American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards, as he says, that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. If that's our reality, that we bring nothing to the table except the sin that makes our salvation necessary, well, then I think we're real close to our hope being in the gospel. Which begs another question. What does it look like for the gospel to not only be the power to save us, but to be the at work in changing us. To say it this way, in what ways are you and I being formed by the gospel as we continue to walk by faith and grow in grace as Jesus' disciples? We'll get into it here a little bit. Because one of the ways we see this, that the gospel is doing its work in transformation, is in the tangible expression of our Mission. That's where we get our third anchor. Christ is preeminent. There's power in the gospel word to transform. And there's a pursuit of gospel mission. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for your sake. That is for the sake of the church. We'll come back a little bit to Paul's suffering and toil. Let me just make one remark. That Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And I'm like, that's, that's really great, Paul. I tend to endure mine. Maybe there's something, there's some gospel work needed to be done in my own heart that I might rejoice in them more. I'm just staying me. Maybe you can join me in that. Paul continues by saying that it was his calling. He was called to make the mystery of the gospel known to Gentiles. And here's that mystery. He says that Christ now dwells in you by faith. And one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament, verse 27, here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We just talked about it a minute ago, right? Jesus' perfection, his righteousness is now ours. Talk about a mystery. We are reconciled to God because when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see the filth of our sin any longer. He sees the perfect glory of Jesus. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let that one just marinate on you a bit. Meditate on that reality this week. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28. Him we proclaim. Jesus in all his glory, his gospel. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Proclaim, warn, and teach. I just want to unpack these briefly. Proclaim is obvious. It means we talk about it. Proclamation can't not be outward. There's no, like, internal proclamation. It just doesn't work. Basically, Jesus and his gospel are on our lips. Make no mistake, gospel mission is profusely evangelistic. Now, it doesn't mean we only talk about Jesus, 
but it means that in him we proclaim means that Jesus and his gospel take center stage in our thinking and in our words. Center stage. Because if our mouths are filled with complaining and grumbling, our mouths cannot be filled with the hope of the gospel. If our mouths are filled with backbiting and gossip, then our mouths cannot be filled with the hope of the gospel. If our mouths are filled with worry and anxious toil about politics or culture or any other number of of what-if scenarios that we really can't honestly do much to control most of the time, if that's the case, our mouths are filled with that, then they cannot be filled with the hope of the gospel. Now, now there's a place for all of those kinds of words, but I do think we need to take inventory of our words at times and do a little check. What are we proclaiming most often and most loudly? Him we proclaim. Let me say it this way that the gospel would flow most freely from our lips. The thing that comes out most readily would be Jesus and his glory and his grace. Let's keep reading. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. I'm, I'm going to put these together. They go hand in hand. thought about tackling them separately, but one, we're already running late, and two, they're pretty much related. I think there's a neglected component sometimes when we think about mission or we think about the gospel It's the warning part. Like, we don't mind the teaching part. I would love to tell you about the hope I have in Jesus. But the warning part makes us uncomfortable. But we have to remember, when we say the gospel is good news, it's precisely good news as an antidote to something not so good. In fact, the gospel itself can be an offense to those who don't repent. Paul writes in excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, We preach Christ crucified. Jesus died for our sins. He calls it a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's a, here's a way to break that down that makes a little sense for us. To those who think they are righteous because they keep a certain set, set of, of moral commands or laws, They have a checklist, and they check every box, and they are righteous by their box checking. The whole idea of grace is offensive to them, because grace is not fair. But box checkers, and I am a box checker, I love it when it's fair, right? And so grace, Christ crucified, is a stumbling block because grace is not fair. On the other side, To those who reject God's law entirely and be like, I'm good. I'm fine just as I I am. I don't need to be saved. The whole idea of a savior is foolish. Don't need saving. Don't need a savior. But Paul says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom is a gospel proclamation. And Paul says it leads to, verse 28, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So the aim of warning and teaching isn't winning the argument. 
The aim is maturity and growth. So, so I want our aim at River City, I want our aim as disciples of Jesus to be Paul's aim. To, to, that we might present everyone more mature, more complete in Christ Jesus. A, a maturing and a deeper work and application of the gospel into our lives. And so just practically, just, just practically, here's how that works its way out in a real small way here on Sunday mornings in what we're going to be studying this fall. We're going to be looking at how the gospel fuels true forgiveness and reconciliation in Philemon and what it means to contend for the gospel and fight for truth in a culture that's hostile to it from the book of Jude. There's there's teaching all throughout God's word, particularly in Philemon, on how our identity now in Christ completely changes our relationships with one another. And how that has radical relational and even societal implications. That's the main idea that permeates the book of Philemon. It's gospel application into relationships. And there are warnings against false teachers and the danger to the church and danger to the gospel itself that we'll look at in the book of Jude. We proclaim, we warn, and teach with all wisdom for the maturing of all those who believe in Jesus by faith. And take note, the gospel is central to our teaching, all of us, and, and, or at least it should be. Because there's lots of worthwhile things to study and teach and argue about, both inside and outside of theology. I'm not saying there aren't other things worth teaching. But when it comes to things of eternal value, our calling as disciples who make disciples, all our teaching, all our theology finds its primary spiritual value in relationship to the central reality of the gospel. The closer we are to the gospel at the center, the higher the value of what it is we are teaching and proclaiming. So studying and teaching and maybe arguing over things like eschatology, or the application of how to apply covenant theology, or angels and demons, or other things from the unseen realm. All of that is well and good because God's word speaks to it. So it's worth spirit-enabled study and debate and conversation and learning. But we must never lose sight of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is of first importance, primary importance. He says that Christ died for our sins, that he was raised, that he was or excuse me, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We need to be careful to not get distracted by spending too much time buried in secondary doctrines or making secondary things primary things. So let me ask you, is the gospel central in our thinking or do we tend to get distracted on secondary matters? Let me ask it a different way. Do you tend to get overwhelmed by the cultural realities or the cares of the world? And I get it. Just a snapshot of the world around you some days, and you're like, this world is bananas. Absolutely bananas. But do they overwhelm me so that I start to be consumed by those cares? ask it this way, and if this seems harsh, I apologize. You can tell me it seems harsh afterwards. 
Are we living gospel-centered or are we content with gospel-adjacent? Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete and mature in Christ. That's the crux of gospel mission. And Paul says, it's worth it. It's worth the toil. It is worth the suffering that he's experienced. It's worth it for the growth of the body of Christ. Paul says, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In verse 29, he says, for this I toil. And I love how he says this. I toil, I work, struggling, Paul says, in all, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So all the way through, the focus is on him. The calling is from him. The, the, the transformation comes from him. The power to do what he's called me to do, also him. That's what Paul's saying. So that the hard, sometimes slow, often mundane work of being a disciple and making disciples, that the laboring for gospel mission actually demonstrates the power of the gospel word. It's actually doing its work. And I know it's doing its work as I have energy to do what he's called me to do. So I think a healthy understanding of gospel word and gospel mission produces a person and a people who have a humble confidence. Because when our hope is not in us, but it is firmly in Jesus, our calling is sure and our charge is sure. We're confident. We have confidence in the saving power of Jesus, and we have confidence that Jesus is at work even now, changing me, changing us, and working in us by his Spirit. That same gospel that was powerfully at work to open my blind eyes and to bring my dead, lifeless body up from the bottom of the ocean, that same power, gospel power, is at work giving me everything that I need so that I might follow him and that I might walk with him in inviting more and more people into the family. As an aside, I think a community that is filled with people who are saturated with the gospel like that, who are dependent on God's grace and God's spirit like that, a, a, a people, a community who are obvious and maybe borderline obnoxious in their praise of God, in their acknowledgement of his absolute sovereign goodness in every aspect of their lives, a people like that I think are pretty compelling people. And I praise God for that reality that, that is actually growing among us. I, I don't preach this message this morning because I see this giant weakness, this giant lack in us as a local church. I actually, quite the opposite. I said it at the beginning. I've been so encouraged by what I see God doing, often in spite of us, here among us. I see God growing a, a garden for himself, a vineyard for himself, and it's producing all kinds of fruit, that growth that God has given, and I just want to see it grow all the more. It's already happening here, amongst us, in families, parents discipling their children in the gospel. It's happening in community groups where multi-generational, life-on-life relationships 
are happening. It's happening one-on-one in accountability and care for all kinds of things going on in life. It's happening on college campuses. It's happening in classrooms. It's happening in cubicles. God is doing something in and amongst us, and we just want to walk in what he's called us to do. Because Jesus is the one in pursuit of the lost. Jesus is the one building his church because Jesus calls us his disciples and has commissioned us to carry that gospel everywhere we go in all the places that he's placed us. So let us then continue to follow Jesus in his work of disciple making, being disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through his gospel. Pray with me. Father, we're grateful that you're at work advancing your own kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that you rule and reign right now as King of Kings, that you're redeeming a people for yourself, people whom you love, and that you are using them to spread your name and your gospel to the least and the lost. Father, for those among us this morning who might not have faith in Jesus, I want to pray for conviction that comes by the Holy Spirit and for saving faith to be granted even now, for ears to be open to receive the good word of the gospel. Father, for your church here, those called by your name, would you renew us, that we might know afresh the power of the gospel in our lives, that we might be awakened afresh to our purpose as a people together. Would you stir us to confession and to praise as we come to the Lord's table? Would you cause us to rejoice in the tangible reminder of the power of Jesus, reconciling power to save us and to sanctify us? Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.